Hi, this is the Seattle Mama Doc Podcast. I'm Dr. Wendy Sue Swanson. We all work so hard to perfect how we pull off parenthood. And often, of course, we may not feel good enough. I'm here today, thankfully, with Dr. Holly Tabor. Hi, Holly. Hi. She's a super smarty pants, and I know her because I was lucky enough to work with her and collide when she was at Seattle Children's for eight years. Um, and we overlapped in the space of caring deeply about how people interact in the health space, but also in the ethics place, although Holly is much more, educa- much more educated in ethics. She's now left and lives in Southern California, or in sunny California at Stanford, and she's where she's an associate professor in the Department of Medicine. But she's also the associate director of the Stanford Center for biomedical ethics. And in that place, you know, her research focuses on ethical issues in genetics and genomics and also in how people want to get the information back and how they translate what they learn about their genetic makeup into their life and how they want to make decisions. Um, And she's also deeply invested because she's a mom um, into the experiences we have when we're seeking care and the impediments of what gets in our way. So, Holly, I'm so thankful to have you here today. Oh, well, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm just thrilled to be here. I'm a big fan of your work. Okay, so when we were talking, you know, we were opening this and I was saying, well, what would we title this? And Holly and I were saying, well, let's talk about um, the space of designing healthcare experiences to be, I think, friendly and less frictionful um, for those who have significant disabilities. And you said something, Holly, right from the get-go, and, and maybe you can say it yourself, but that is... Redesigning, I mean, you can explain, redesigning healthcare for those with disabilities, of course, will be good for those without those same disabilities. Yeah, I think about this a lot in both my personal life and my professional life. Um, And I think when you think about the things you might want to change and improve to help children and and actually anyone with different kinds of both physical, developmental, and cognitive disabilities, when you make a list of what those things are, maybe we'll talk about that, they're actually things that are good for everybody. Um, And this is true for a lot of things in disability, that when we fix the things and improve the things to help make things more accessible to people with disabilities, we actually help everyone. So it's a win-win-win. Okay, so give me an example. I mean, like, it seems obvious to me, right? Like, if it's really loud somewhere and you're hard of hearing, if you brought the volume down, it would be great for the people that aren't hard of hearing, right? I mean... Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, and maybe I can say one word if you don't mind the beginning about why I think about this a lot because it'll help frame what I'm saying. So I have two children, um, one whose name is Colin, who's 16, as a sophomore in high school, and one whose name is Jasper, who's a seventh grader. Um, And um, uh, my older son has autism and he was diagnosed when he was about three years old. Um, And I have learned so much from him and from the experience of being his mom and the intersection of thinking about how to be um, the best mother to him, the best parent to him and advocate for him actually comes sort of intersects with my professional interest about how to think about how we can most ethically provide health care to children in general, including children with disabilities. So I sort of mesh these two things in my head together at lots of different points in my life. Um, and one example, um, Colin's been to the doctor many times for many reasons, like most 16-year-olds, but also including many people with autism. Um, he's verbal. He's uh, on what they used to call, but don't call anymore, the higher functioning end of the spectrum. 
Um, and we recently went to a doctor's office. We had an appointment that we made after school because he doesn't like missing school. Um, I actually had had my husband also take off work so he could come too, so we could kind of tag team and have two people to help make it as comfortable as possible for him. Um, and we get to the um, doctor's office, and there's a wonderful receptionist who was very kind of professional who told us that there was going to be at least a 45-minute wait. Um, and the waiting room is crowded. Every single seat is taken. It's a, a, a clinic that has multiple pediatric specialties in it. There are screaming kids, kids who want, don't want to be there, impatient kids. There's a loud TV blaring at incredibly high volume, a very loud cartoon. I don't even know what cartoon it was. And Colin is a really good self-advocate, and he took one look at this space and was um, saying, I am not sitting here for 45 minutes. Um, and so because we planned for this and we're experienced, my husband took him outside and took him for a walk, and I said I'd text them when they were ready. It turned out to be an hour and 45-minute wait, and I don't think that's anyone's fault necessarily. It's the way our systems work. And I sat in this room for that whole time, and I have to say it was really sensorily overloading and stressful for me to be in that room, and I don't even have autism. Um, and, and again, I don't think that anyone means badly, but that's a kind of environmental thing that makes it. By the time your kid gets in the exam room and needs to have the exam and needs to have whatever reasons brought them to the doctor that day, they are just completely emotionally stressed, anxious, um, at their absolute worst, and it really impedes access to healthcare. And so I think there are things we can do um, that would help those kids, help those parents learn how to advocate for those kids, help those kids learn how to advocate for themselves where possible, but also would improve the healthcare access and experience for everybody who comes to those clinics. So that's kind of how I think about it. Yeah, well, right. I mean, it's interesting. I, I uh, listening to you, I was thinking about all the accommodations you made, right? So two parents taking off work, uh-huh. still the end of the day, but not the end of your day, the end of the school day, right? So there's yep. those accommodations knowing that this long wait that actually exceeded even a doubling in time, crowded, loud, and designed yep. not at all, actually, for the f- panel of patients that they were serving, <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, and also I think the other things that we've learned to advocate for, but I think we give an advantage and I work in healthcare um, and I know it's okay to do that is, you know, um, so after about an hour and a half of wait time, I actually left the exam room and went out with what I thought was the nicest, least intimidating smile on my face and said, Colin has autism and he really needs to know um, a window of about how long you think it might be (laughs) in order to not be anxious. Can you give me a window of how long you think it might be? And I think a lot of parents would feel uncomfortable asking that kind of question and asking for that kind of clarity. Um, I always tell every provider from the receptionist to the nurse to the uh, fellow to the attending that Colin has autism and that he may not look like he's listening, but in fact he is listening. He'd like you to talk to him. He'd like you to introduce yourself. Um, He'd like you to explain what's going to happen. And then when you get to talking about next steps and what things mean, he may actually ask to leave the room so that you can talk to me about it because it may actually be stressful for him. And again, these are all things that are true for most kids and most families. And, And some of these things like introducing Introducing yourself to the patient are actually sort of standard quality care measures that we actually expect at a lot of our institutions now. And yet they don't happen a lot of the time. Again, not because people mean badly, but because healthcare is a really busy place, intense place. And so I think these things are really important for people with autism and related disabilities, but they're actually really important for everybody. 
Well, yeah, let me, so, you know, being a pediatrician and thinking about how, I, I love what you're saying, which is what you're doing each and every time you interact with anyone in the system is you're providing a more comprehensive introduction. You're saying uh-huh. the shell of this experience, what I look like or even just sound like on the phone, isn't the whole story. Here's my, here's my quick, here's the biography on my son. Here's the biography of my son. Here's the biography of my son. To give and provide insight, knowing full well, to your point, that those who are providing care care deeply about doing it well. But they're not necessarily given that biography in a way, in a meaningful way. The electronic health record doesn't flash up on the screen with a child with special needs or significant disability or preferences, which is what you're talking about, too, right? This combination of... Uh being known, right? The That when someone comes in, you know, like Starbucks revolutionized their design and their business model about knowing that their customers wanted to be known. So people look you in uh-huh. the eye, they ask you what your name is, they made an app to make it easy for you to or pre-order your coffee if you don't want to interact with somebody. And then they said, if you don't like what we made for you, we'll always give it another try. And yeah. and you want basically <laughs> someone to, to be flashed up that biography and, and they're not going to be, but they want to be too. I mean, What's interesting there is that I feel like the system itself, the MA checking you in, the receptionist, everyone else working on the back end, I'd say they want that biography and they wish they had it. It's just not handed to them as well as you're handing it. So it's almost like if parents could figure out their spiel (laughs) and make and kind of enforce it and inject it into the system, that might be a way to feel discovered. I mean, do you feel like they the team i mean you don't have a comparison cuz you always do it but do you feel right. like you do they like people accommodate you in the sense that they change the way the visit is done that they talk directly to Colin that they have him yeah. you know they ask if he wants to exit at some point in a conversation yeah i think they do in fact i've been in some visits lately um we've had to do a bunch of visits for a couple of reasons lately and i've been in some visits where afterwards i say to the provider we need to film what you just did because that's an example of how you should interact with patients like colin and so i think part of this is education and training i think part of this is systems change small things like not having blaring tv screens um small things like um asking is does your child have a disability or communication or sensory issues that we should know about there are small things we can do Uh, i think there are bigger, more interesting things we can do, too, that relate to some of the things I know you're interested in in digital health. I think um, there's really no reason why we can't use sort of a Starbucks model or a Disney model to some of these things. You know, I think we can have ways of maybe letting, uh, Colin thinks we should have an app that tells you what the wait times are, like Disney does for the rides. And I think that's a really interesting idea. I think there, we could have flags in the medical record, an electronic medical record that say, hey, this is a person with autism. Before they come, when they get the reminder call, let's ask them some questions about works for them. Let's see if we can check them into the waiting room. Even if they're waiting longer in the waiting room, maybe we can have a, I mean, sorry, in the exam room, maybe they can check back into the exam room because it's quieter a little bit earlier. So I think um, there are systems things we can do. I think there are things parents can do to have a spiel. I think some parents have kids who are so anxious about the doctor's office that they won't have the sort of presence of mind and calm in that moment to be able to do that spiel. So healthcare should make it um, easier for them by making a, a system for that. I think the other thing we can do um, that I know the University of Michigan has a really nice video about is actually provide videos, um, both for providers and for families and individuals with autism to see what does the clinic like uh, look like. I think sometimes people with autism really want to know what does the door look like? What do the chairs look like? And if they can see that in advance and or if someone can make a, what's called a social story for them about what going to the doctor will be like, that really helps them. Um, actually, when Colin was three, we were going to go on an airplane for the first 
time since he'd been an infant, so he didn't remember going on an airplane. And I knew he'd be anxious about it. So um, I actually, when I was on a flight for work by myself, I actually had, it was before there were cameras on every phone. So I had a digital camera with me and I took pictures of different aspects of the plane, um, including, you know, the bathroom and other kinds of things. Um, and it was pretty soon after 9-11. So actually, before I did it, I explained to the flight attendants, I just want to explain to you what I'm about to do. <laughs> I'm about to walk around the plane taking pictures of things because I have a child with autism who's never been on a plane before and is going to go in a couple of weeks on a plane and I want to show him some pictures about what happens when you go on a plane. Um, and so I think things like that that institutions can do and parents can do um, can really make a big difference in making an easier experience. And again, those videos, those kinds of pictures can be helpful for kids who don't have disabilities too. Well, Holly, you're like singing my song because, you know, we will review this. We are going to meet up world when I'm down in California, hopefully in a few weeks with Holly. But, you know, we built something called Virtual Handshake that did exactly this. So but as you were talking, I was kind of riffing on the model that we built, which was ultimately saying before you come in here, you're going to be able to log in and it's going to say, hi, hi, Holly, we'll see you next Thursday at three o'clock, you're seeing Dr. Swanson. And here's a uh-huh. video of why Dr. Swanson goes to work. So you and Colin could have sat and looked at a video of me and how I talked and and what I felt yeah. like to you. And then we did wayfinding videos, literally driving up the entrance, going into the parking garage, walking from the parking garage into the reception desk, from the reception desk into the clinical kind of ambulatory waiting room and into an ambulatory visit. Um, and then we had links and education and things to see. But, you know, so we've built this. I mean, these technologies exist. What we can talk about offline is the real big challenge of building technology and integrating it at the enterprise level into a system that shows that there is kind of that the process works, that the flow works, that the technology interfaces and things communicate. But but as you talk, I have to tell you what I think about more and more is, you know, the space of understanding what social networks have been doing about user generated data that I mean, Uh which, you know, in the news in a crazy way, I mean, today. Day, just the day that we're recording yeah. this, it's it's the 11th of, of April, and Mark Zuckerberg is on his second day in front of Congress, right, talking about user data and how yeah. it's moved around around and how we are the surveillance really goes. But when I think about it, is what in an ideal world is not me sending my handshake just to you, but in fact uh-huh. the requisite act that before I walk in the door, if you, if if I even constrained it and said I will give every patient and family that's going to come and see me a 30 second chance, Colin could make me a 30 second direct cam video, or you could make yeah. me a 30-second direct-to-cam video of what you want out of the visit today and what's most important to you today. So that before I walk in the door, I stand in the hallway yeah. even and really listen, not because I can't do it when I walk in, because I think that's the initial criticism is like, well, you should just do that when you walk in. But we all know it doesn't work that way. The forces no. at play no. and the electronic health record and the dynamics of the exam room, but you could give me a handshake back, right? And I could then review yeah. what you want me to review, not what I think I'm supposed to review, but also from a patient-directed way, what you want me to do. So I'm going to show you that and we can talk about how we can make that better. <laughs> yeah, I think that's really exciting. And, and and that fits well, I think, with a couple of things. I think, you know, Colin actually started in sixth grade making a PowerPoint presentation about autism and about himself to give to all of his classes. And when he first did it, we were a little nervous about it. It was his idea. Um, and we were a little nervous about it, I think, because as parents, we know there's still a lot of stigma against people with disabilities. And, you know, the teen years are obviously tough years of <laughs> looking different and feeling <laughs> yeah. different already. Yeah. Um, But actually, he was totally right, and we were totally wrong. It was actually really important for him to have his voice to explain what he thought was important for people to know about him, to act in an inclusive and fair way towards 
him. And it was very empowering for him, but it also had a really big impact on everyone who saw it. We were really surprised by that. And I think if you extrapolate that to healthcare, what you're talking about for the handshake in the other direction for the patient or the family or both to give the provider some information about what's important is a really important thing. And I think we can do it. I think it is hard to scale up, but it's not impossible. I mean, in our um, surgical, you know, in our, our ER here, we now, I think almost every place has boards where it says, you know, the state and which part of the OR process people are in, right? And so, um, you know, I think 10 years, we might not have thought that would be possible and it's possible now. So I think technology can kind of get there. It just, it just takes a while. The other thing I'll say is that as um, a parent of a 16-year-old, I'm thinking a lot about transition to adulthood. And I'm thinking a lot now about how to model for him and how to teach him how to navigate the healthcare environment. Because there's a lot of data that adults with disabilities in general have very poor access to healthcare on every level. And it's part because they don't know how to go to the doctor. They don't know how to make an appointment. They don't know how to explain what's wrong with them. They don't know how to follow up. And honestly, for all of us, that can be hard, right? And so part of what I'm modeling for him is this is how you talk about yourself. This is how you advocate for what you need. Um, this is how you explain why this is hard for you. And I was so proud of him. We were in a visit in a clinic that he'd never been in before, another another visit than the one I talked about before. And we, it was late in the day. There actually was almost no one left. So it was, it was mostly empty. But there was a TV blaring a loud cartoon to a completely empty waiting room, which was ridiculous. And without my saying anything before I could even advocate for him, he turned to the receptionist and he said, you know, I have autism and that really bothers me. Could you please turn that down or off? And I was so proud of him because he clearly had seen that we were doing that for him and that it was totally okay to say that to the um, receptionist and the receptionist did that. Um, and so that's kind of my dream is that, you know, people with disabilities to the degree that they're able can feel like they're heard and can feel like they have tools for advocating for what they need to get the health care they need. And that will improve outcomes across the board. Yeah, I, I love that. I mean, that's also just the, that's the kind of zoom out gestalt parenthood model too. You just keep doing what you want Colin to learn and he will start to do it. That's how kids, you know, we, we learn in the apprentice model, right? As most yeah. children learn in the apprentice model. And that is from learning to speak to l- learning to walk, to learn the, the, you know, activities of daily living and independence. And of course, children with disabilities like your son, right, have harder challenges in that navigation. But that sure. this ongoing um, kind of snow plowing that you're doing um, is great for uh-huh. him. And, of course, because of your expertise and your hard work, it's it's great for all of us. So yeah, if I, I think the thing, if I can just say one more thing, is that I think um, – you know, um, what I've been thinking about a lot lately, and it's partly why you and I started talking about this before, is that um, I'm, I can do this for him, and that's part of my job as his mom, and partly having some of the professional experiences I have maybe make me a little bit more able and confident to do that, and, and that's great, right? But I don't want it to be just for him. I mean, I look at the healthcare systems that I work in, and I want, you know, I work now at Stanford and at um, the Seal Packard and the adult hospital I worked before at Seattle Children's. I want our institutions to be leaders in improving accessibility and comfort for you know, patients and families with these kinds of disabilities across the board. And I think to do that, we have to ask parents and patients and even adults about when they were children, back when they were children, about what needs to be improved. And we need to have them be a part of the process in a sort of advisory capacity of helping us think about that. Um, I belong to a Facebook group of um, parents, mostly mothers, of children with special needs who are also in academia. So it's kind of a, a weird select subgroup of really wonderful people. Um, And I told them that I was going to talk with you. 
And I said, hey, if you wanted doctors to know anything about what would improve your healthcare experience, what would you want to know? And they told me so many important and interesting things, including things that I'd never thought of, things that are unique and important to their kids. Um, some of them are based on great experiences they have with physicians. Some are based on really hard and traumatic experiences. And I just, in hearing their stories, we don't have time for me to go through them all, but hearing their stories, I just really wish there were a venue and an outlet for um, pediatricians in general and for people who work at specific institutions to hear that feedback and be creative about how we could address some of those um, concerns and, and how we could solve Yeah, yeah. I want you to tell us some of these, though. Like, this is a venue. So let's start here and, and, <laughs> yeah. and, and share a couple of those. And then I can chat with you a little bit about, I mean, what you're talking right about is human-centered design where parents are actively involved in designing the system, not just sitting on Total. an advisory council, but earnestly sitting alongside developers and product owners, at least in digital health, which is what we're doing at Children's as we stand up some new efforts. But we have we want patients and families involved in the design work of what is yeah. being built and what is being prioritized such that we stop in this kind of paternalistic model to say, me as a pediatrician, I know what to do in digital health. When I'm starting to raise up my hands and say, yeah, that first shot with virtual handshake, it was kind of a go. But as I listen to you, I realize maybe more important is the user-generated video, not the video uh -huh. of me, <laughs> right? Like, stop. Yeah, they're, both, uh, they're both. I think it creates trust. And if so, people are so nervous from, about strangers, your handshake thing is really important. So I can give you, I wrote down some of the things they said. Would. I think one of the things, again, which is just good patient-centered care is look at the child. Talk to the child. There's a saying in um, a lot of disability communities um, of presuming competence. Just because the child may look different, may not look like they're listening, um, uh, may look significantly impaired, doesn't mean they can't understand, doesn't mean they don't want to engage with you directly. Don't just speak over the child. Don't assume the child doesn't understand what you say. They may well be listening to everything you say and understand it. Um, they talked about explaining steps in advance about what you're going to do and why, um, asking if the child had any questions. Um, several mentioned that it was really important for um, providers to appreciate that um, um, the challenges of, of full-time care, especially for children with more significant needs, may be um, hard for them to appreciate. You know, that when the parents are talking about some challenges that they have at home, that sometimes they feel like some providers are dismissive of those because they're not seeing them or experiencing them that way in the short visit of the appointment. Um, several of them talked about um, being concerned that some kids don't know about their diagnosis and so being mindful about what you talk about in front of them um, and thinking carefully about how you talk about implications, particularly for scary things like you have, you have to talk about surgical options. You know, maybe talking about that in front of the child is hard. Um, a lot of parents also talked about wanting to prefer having some communication with providers either before the visit or after the visit by phone or email. So for example, if a provider wants to know about a child's significant, you know, behavioral or emotional problems, the parent may not want to talk about that in front of the child. It may be really hard for the parent to talk about that in front of the child. So finding another way to get that information to the provider in an honest way. Um, and then again, similar afterwards for next steps, the parent may have more questions and they can come up with or ask if they're managing their child and their child's anxiety in that clinic setting, perhaps after waiting in the waiting room for an hour and 40 minutes like I was the other day. And so saying we may not be able to get to everything now, but if you have questions afterwards that occur to you, if you want to follow up, this is how we can 
do that in a time and a space that's that's safer to you. A lot of parents of children with disabilities feel um, really comfortable with email, social media, other kinds of things because it's easier to do at home or do you know while they're doing other things involved in care for their child. Um, I think I asked Colin before <laughs> I said I asked his permission to do this, um, and then I uh, asked him what he might want to say, and he said he thought it was really important for doctors to talk to patients. Um, he thought that there should be more headphones available in waiting rooms for people who don't have headphones or don't remember to bring them. Um, he thinks having transparency about wait times in some way, he would love for it to be an app, but some way so you can kind of know how much longer it's going to be. Not knowing and indeterminacy and unpredictability is one of the hardest things for him and for a lot of people who have similar diagnoses. Um, and then he actually had this idea, which I think is unlikely to happen, but I really like it. I want to do this for my um, clinic visits for, as a patient myself, is that there should be virtual reality where we can all imagine we're at the beach when we're sitting in the doctor's office. And I don't, I think that's probably not that likely to happen, but that sure would be nice. <laughs> well, Holly, I, it isn't, I don't think that's so far off. I mean, I can't believe this, but, you know, we are working on some app build solutions on wait time visibility, and we are working with a company right now designing where we're going to use some virtual reality. So I want you to tell oh, Colin awesome. Awesome. that his ideas are spot on, and we have heard them from other people, and there are systems that are working on his behalf. And virtual reality is being used in pediatric populations across the country, often during things like chemotherapy infusions and, you know, uh -huh. even and dialysis and things that take a long time. Yeah. But I love yeah. his idea of thinking about reinventing the waiting room experience. Since we know that we can't get rid of wait times, because we clearly can't, right. it's really no, what no. he's asking for is a fairness, a transparency to say, just tell me what the truth is. Like, give me a real, a real estimate, which as best you can, on how long this is going to uh -huh. be. And then give me something that values who I am during that time. Let me be known to you and listen to me. And he's already learning yeah, how to do that options. with you. Yeah, yeah, give me you. options. And I think that's what people want is options and respect and transparency. And, and again, an awareness of the barriers and an awareness of, you know, I really think that people, uh, I don't just think this, there's a lot of data to prove um, and to demonstrate that people, children and adults with disabilities have greater health care needs, greater health care costs, more visits per year. Um, and yet it's harder for them to get care. And yet there are many providers who are well-intentioned, but who perpetuate stigma, who perpetuate um, feeling that like they're pathologized um, for having challenges with some of these things. And I would just love, again, to have a world where um, we can model um, maybe at some institutions like yours and mine for the broader um, pediatric community how we can do a better job. Um, and how we. And then again, that will translate better to better adult care when these kids grow up. Um, and so, so that's kind of my dream. That's my dream world. And I think I have decided that while this isn't the main focus of my, my research and the work that I do um, uh, every day, that I, I am not the first person I know who's a provider and a parent of a child with autism or disability who's sort of used that dual role to try to speak up about, about how to do things well and how to do things better. And I just kind of decided that I have a, a moral and ethical imperative to sort of um, talk to people I know who are creative like you and other people to think about how we can do this and, and at least move in the right direction. Oh, well, I hear you, sister. <laughs> like, yeah. I know you do. I mean, I, know I, you, I, you know, I want to live in that world, too. I don't parent a child with a significant disability. But I, you know, I think the I have to just in a summary since um, just to close this out, I, I love what you did today, Holly. And that is you oh, gave thanks. us advice for what to do as parents. So you talked to us really about ultimately determining and translating your 
personal or your child's biography to the relevant stakeholders of giving them a chance to set up for a visit um, in a way that's successful by saying, this is who I am. Please know who I am. And here's my preference. You know, you also talked about preparing a child potentially with a cognitive or different disability to have a less stressful experience by doing the hard work of either getting the organization to give you content, videos, and images, or getting them yourself, walking around airplanes to walking around clinic uh-huh. waiting rooms um, and, and doing that, and then fixing the environment in real time. And I think what comes to play there is the ultimate um, challenge with the hierarchy that exists in healthcare. It's really hard to ask for things to change when you feel the dependent um, person in the power equation. We as patients, I mean, just like you, like I, you know, I'm trained in bioethics, I'm trained as a board certified pediatrician, and I'm a loudmouth, uh-huh. right? And even then, <laughs> I have a really hard time when something's going wrong for someone I'm caring for, my mother or my children or myself to speak up. I mean, uh-huh. at times where even there's safety at play. So, but you're saying, you know, tell this biography, prep and prepare by getting visual or kinesthetic experiences that help guide you. And then when the environment's not great, go up and ask to turn the TV off. I mean, my hope is that we don't even have to tell people why or what our diagnosis is or our challenges, but to say, this environment doesn't work for me. Please turn the television off. So that was one. But then then I think just to to summarize too, Holly, I, I so appreciate what you and your colleagues in that very um, treasured group, I'm sure, on on Facebook is, I, I think I can summarize all of this of kind of, you know, presumed competence, right? The idea, and, and what that is distilled down to is be a human being in the exam room and interact not based on a category or a diagnosis or an exclusion or a disability, but actually start the visit in a way um, that acknowledges with great respect the human beings that are there, right? That's what we want. (laughs) We want to feel like people know we're there and we want to feel known and we want to be just like, we want to be seen and heard and we want to belong in the room. And that's what Colin, and that's what you're saying is involved my child. This is my child seeking care. I'm his guardian and his helper, but I'm his support team and this is his visit. And Absolutely. I, I couldn't have said it any better. That's that's my that's my vision and uh, I, I I have complete faith and determination that with people like you and other people we're gonna we're gonna move in that direction. And people like Colin and, and his peers too. I think they teach us so much. Um, and so we, we can learn from them. Um, and that's my goal. Molly, you're awesome. I learned so much, and I'm so thankful for both the advice that you just gave me that will help me, even without disabilities, to your point, uh, um, and my children and seeking care, and and what I get to learn from you in our work at Seattle Children's in redesigning patient and family experience using digital, but also what I get to learn from Colin. So thanks for showing up as a mom and as an ethicist and as a scientist. Thanks for the invitation, and thanks for the work you're doing. It's exciting. As we all know, parenting is a high-stakes job, but thanks to people like Dr. Holly Tabor, uh, the good news is you've got this. Thanks for listening. The Seattle Mama Doc podcast episodes air every single week. I'm always interested in hearing what you have to say, what was helpful, and what you want to learn more about. Reach out to me on Twitter at Seattle Mama Doc, on my Facebook, Seattle Mama Doc, or at SeattleMamaDoc.com. Tell me what you want to learn. Tell me if you want to join me and point me to experts you'd love to learn more from.